Daniel Robert Wolfe is a British Canadian historian. He served as the 20th Principal and Vice Chancellor of Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, a position to which he was appointed in 2009. He was reappointed to a second term as Queen's Principal early in 2013. He recently stepped down from the position after 10 years to return to full-time teaching and research in Queen's History Department. Dr. Wolfe's research has focused on two areas, early modern British intellectual and cultural history and the global history of historical writing. He's the author of five books and co-editor of several others, including the two-volume A Global Encyclopedia of Historical Writing, his 2003 monograph The Social Circulation of the Past, won the John Ben Snow Prize of the North American Conference on British Studies in 2004 for the best book on British history pre-1800, his most recent books, both published in 2011, are the co-edited volumes three and five of the five-volume Oxford History of Historical Writing, a series of which he was general editor, and two sole-authored one-volume histories of historiography. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Great to be here. We are interested in your hobby? Is it more than a hobby? Uh, I would say it is a little bit more than a hobby because it uh, directly relates to my uh, uh, my job as a as a history professor. And that's book collecting of Elizabethan books. Um, I would say a little broader than Elizabethan. I would say anything roughly from the late fifteenth through the 18th century, and sometimes I stray a little further ahead, but that core area is the, I would say, the 16th, 17th, and early 18th centuries. Again, I've got a few Victorian things and some uh, some early 20th century things, but uh, I would say the, uh, the core of the collection is the 16th and 17th centuries. Okay. Before we get into the specifics on that, let's go back to your early life and you, the beginning of your relationship with books. Uh, how did that get started? Well, I suppose my relationship with books started the way most people's did, as in your parents. Uh, they read you, and then eventually you learn to read yourself. And uh, I'm told I was a fairly avid reader as a, as a child. And uh, so I've always, I've always liked them. And because I was always interested in history, I actually started collecting rare books at a relatively early age. That was my next question. Okay, well, I bought my first one in, I remember very specifically, in the summer of 1981 when I was a graduate student in Oxford. Uh, it's a book I still have. It's an early edition of the complete works of Ben Jonson, the Jacobean and uh, Caroline poet and dramatist. What and, was the bookstore? Um, I think, but I'm not absolutely certain that it was either Robin Waterfield's or Thornton's, both in Oxford. I immediately gave it to my parents for what was then their 25th wedding anniversary, and there it stayed until they died, uh, whereupon it came back uh, to me and is uh, sitting up on, uh, on the shelf. Why did you buy that particular volume? Well, because my parents were very, very sort of uh, a, a British, and uh, also my mother w 
was an English professor part-time at the University of Winnipeg uh, with an interest in 17th century prose and poetry. And, uh, you know, the Johnson looked like it fit the bill. My dad's interests were a little bit different, but, uh, you know, I guess I catered more to mums in that case, but they were very, ple they were very pleased to, to have it. But my very first book that I owned for myself uh, was actually two books, one of which I still have and the other of which I don't, uh, part of the collection that I gave to our library, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. So what was it about that particular edition, volume, that attracted your attention? The Johnson volume, uh, I think just simply because it would have interested my mother as an English professor and somebody who, uh, although most of her interest was in 20th century American and uh, early 20th century British, she had dabbled in the 17th century and in fact uh, actually taught a lot of you know 17th century Milton and, and so forth. So I thought a book on Johnson was as good a 25th anniversary present as I could find. Was it beautifully bound or was it an early um, edition? I or? would say it was probably uh, not particularly beautifully bound. I mean it was it was uh, clearly a modern binding but with you know a nice uh, a nice label on the spine and so forth. At that point I didn't know nearly as much about uh, the the provenance and binding and so forth of uh, old books as I came to. I was actually just at the outset, really, of my doctoral studies at that point and had yeah. yet to spend the, the many, many hours I would spend in Duke Humphrey's library at uh, the Bodleian in Oxford, uh, literally handling you know, rare books uh, from, from my period. So uh, it was just, I think, the title and the subject, I think. You wanted to please your mother? Yeah, I wanted to please my parents, and yeah. I think my mother in particular, uh, you know, after years as a child of you know, buying them, you know, Mountie ashtrays and uh, the <laughs> anniversary presents, uh, 25, 20, 25 was a big deal, I thought, so uh, they actually made it to 56 uh, before, uh, before the first parent died. Uh, but I did want to go on to say that it did sort of pique my interest that and then spending two more years working with this stuff in the Bodleian uh, and, and actually maybe acquiring some of these myself. So but yeah, that was the thing is there's handling them and then there's this desire to own, to, to acquire. Like, why did that set in? Uh, possession, yeah. It, uh, it, I think it set in almost by accident in that I was on the point of leaving the UK in the spring of 1984 to return to Canada and come back to Queens as a postdoctoral fellow. And, you know, while you're over there for four years, you acquire certain things like a bicycle and other things that you're obviously not going to transport back. So I was selling stuff. And a fellow graduate student of mine who still hadn't finished his thesis uh, desperately needed an electronic typewriter. And uh, I had one. It wasn't going to work in Canada. So, uh, so I sold it to him. And he was very, very short on funds, so he asked if he could trade two rare books he had uh, to, to me. And I felt a little bit guilty, but he was quite insistent that, that, that he was more than happy to part with them to get the typewriter. So they were uh, worth quite a bit more than a typewriter. Well, that would be that would be my view, but uh, but you know I didn't I, I didn't argue too hard uh, about it, and I mean, it was it was I had a typewriter, but uh, 
uh, so I'm sure it served him well, but uh, I'm sure it's also long gone, whereas the books are still in existence. I still have one of them, which is an early edition of Thomas Hobbes's translation of Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. The other one was an edition of Richard Hooker's Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, and uh, that one I no longer have. It didn't actually fit the collection when the collection started growing, so I actually gave it to our library here, as, as of course I have with several other things. But, uh, mm. uh, but those were the first two that I actually bought and owned. And so what? It just felt really good to own it, or what was it? Well, it was partly that it was, hey, great, this is a you know, 350-year-old book, and uh, it is mine. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, yeah, a bit of a sense with these very old books that you know, even though you pay money for them, you never really do own them. You're yeah. really the steward of them because uh, they were around 300-odd years ago, mm-hmm. and all being well, they'll still be around 300 years from, uh, from now. Mm-hmm. But there was a very practical element to this in that, uh, I am a historian of historiography, mm-hmm. and the Hobbes book uh, was a early English translation of one of the great Greek classical histories, uh, Thucydides' late 5th century history of the war between Athens and Sparta, and uh, so it was directly relevant to my own writing, my doctoral thesis was about early 17th century historians of their past. Yeah, so... Exactly what does, uh, not that we need to spend a lot of time on it, but what's historiography? Uh, That's a really good question, and uh, in fact, uh, there's a number of different definitions of it. I I would say um, you can use the word in several different ways. And one is when we'll talk about the historiography of a particular period or a particular subject, for example, the historiography of the French Revolution or the historiography of the fall of the Roman Empire. And that basically means reviewing what modern historians and perhaps slightly slightly earlier historians have said about that particular issue, so debates. Second, Second way it's used is often to refer to historical method. So departments of history will often offer a undergraduate course, sometimes even a graduate course called historiography, which is really a course on historical methods. I'm how, not a, how to be a historian? Uh, how to be a historian? I'm actually not a super fan of of those. And any time I've taught historiography, and I've taught it a lot at four different places. Um, I've tended to avoid that, uh, partly because I'm very much a pluralist on historical method. What does that mean? Well, it just means I I don't think that there is a definitive way to be a historian, uh, that there are various different methods. and, And in fact, the reason I feel that really has to do with the third meaning of the term historiography, which I would call the history of history, and that's the one I do. And because I I treat history as a subject to be historicized itself, the story of its development to be told, you know, chronologically as well as thematically, um, I see that it was not always the way it has been for the last 150, 200 years. There have been a lot of changes. So Uh, So you study how historians study? I study how they study and how they wrote about the past. Uh, because yeah. your your dissertation identified, for example, uh, the study of antiquarian books and manuscripts 
as being legitimate history themselves. Is that right? Well, it was one of the one of the <laughs> one of the theses to the thesis, if you like, was that in England in the early 17th century, for the very first time, the concept that a narrative history could include more than kings and battles and major events actually came to pass, particularly in the work of a early 17th century lawyer, politician, and legal scholar called John Selden, who wrote in 1618 a book called The History of Tithes, uh, tithes being the tenth that you pay uh, of the produce of your land to the church every year. And uh, Selden was a little bit of an anti-clerical, and he wanted to uh, expose the myth that this was you know, divinely ordained, was in the Bible and so forth, and showed that the practice of giving tithes was actually historically based, and there had been changes, it was not immemorial and so forth. And uh, it caused a huge controversy. It was censored. Uh, the, the king commanded him not to engage in controversies with his critics. But the important thing from my point of view is that it was a history of tithes, right. of a thing and not a king. And that was a real first for the, seven, for the 17th century, at least in England. The French had already done this. Uh, there were many, many French scholars in the late, mid to late 16th century who were doing a kind of uh, social and cultural history based on antiquities and not simply on, on events. But uh, this was the first for uh, an English historian. That was so, so what did he do? He went and got a whole bunch of tithes? Like what? Like no, examples, no, he just he just, looked through, he just looked through the records. He looked that's through what the I mean. Chronicles, he, he, uh, yes, exactly. And chronicles and uh, and looked at uh, you know how the law had changed and when these came in and found that it was not actually a matter of quote unquote divine law or even ecclesiastical law, right? But uh, really a kind of a common law practice that had crept up over 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 the centuries and that uh, the church and the clergy were uh, clinging to this as a. Uh, a kind of divine, divine right. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, so he was looking at the material record. That's and, right. And then, yeah. and, and coming up with some, and using that to come up with a, an argument. He was used doing what we would now regard as, I would say, as a very empirical examination and a chronologically empirical examination of the historical record on this subject, instead of proceeding from an assumption and then just documenting right. selectively behind that behind that assumption. And this was new for England? This was relatively new because um, uh, he appears relatively late in my thesis and in the first monograph I wrote, which was largely based on the thesis, most of the rest of it concerned what I would call more conventional narrative historians. Uh, William Camden, who's a really interesting figure, because he actually did a lot of antiquarian research. He was actually perhaps one of the great fathers of English antiquarianism, writing a massive book called The Britannia, which was full of the local history of towns and counties and so forth. And he also wrote a history of Queen Elizabeth's reign after she had died. But the interesting thing is, he never connected the two. He, in fact, he insisted when he was writing the Britannia, the antiquarian work, that it was not a history, even though it was absolutely full of historical uh, details. Uh, so he couldn't make that uh, that jump. It, uh, it took Selden, who was a generation and a bit younger, to to make to make that leap. Okay, so how did all of this inform your collecting then? 
Well, um, I decided that uh, because I was still working on the subject, and in fact I've never really left uh, the subject, although my interests have, I guess, evolved to include more global history of history, not simply England, um, I um, decided that given that I was moving back to Canada, and that we were well shy of having the internet or anything like that, Mm. uh, uh, really if I was going to continue to work in the field, uh, and not be dependent on trips to major rare book libraries, uh, then mm-hmm. I was going to need a few copies of these things myself. So, so what things? These, these classic history books from the 17th century. Right. So you were collecting history books from those times. Exactly. And what? It seems to me, although they're old, not a lot of people would collect those, so the prices were probably pretty good. Uh, well, the prices were excellent back in the 80s, uh, because as you probably know, the antiquarian book market is uh, extraordinarily volatile. They can be up at one point and down at uh, another, and I was fortunate in that my early purchases came really in the mid to late 80s, um, when things were actually relatively uh, cheap, and also mm-hmm. at that point I didn't yet have a, have a kid and a mortgage <laughs> and, yeah. and so forth. So I didn't buy a huge number, but I did buy some key things. For example, there was an early 18th century collected, collected edition of most of those 17th century historians, which uh, my doctoral supervisor had lent me his copy to work on when I was in Oxford. And a copy of that came on the market uh, around 1986 or so, and I just knew I, you know, had had to have it. So and, and what was that one called? Well, that was called a complete history of England, and it's uh, often associated with a uh, a bishop called White Kennet, uh, who actually wrote uh, a good chunk of the latter part of it, uh, going up to the reign of uh, Queen Anne. But, so, so uh, what did he do? Did he summarize the work of all? No, he actually stories? literally he actually he he were he collaborated with an editor publisher called John Hughes, who actually assembled all of the histories written in the early seventeenth century. Just or not all of them, but at least one per period. So uh, he used Francis Bacon's History of Henry the Seventh, written in sixty, published in sixteen twenty-two, to cover Henry the Seventh's reign. He used uh, Camden's uh, Annals of Queen Elizabeth that I mentioned earlier uh, to cover to cover her reign. Uh, there was a bishop in the early seventeenth century called Francis Godwin who wrote a history of uh, the the Middle Tudors. Uh, Edward and Mary used that. And, and so on. So he just picked one, one per period and put them all together, and uh, Kenneth extended it up to, I think, from the late 17th century into the early 18th. And it came out in two editions in 1701, and I forget when the second one is because I've got the first one. <laughs> so how many volumes was that? It's three, it's three large folio volumes. So that covered off a certain, a certain number of historians that, that per did. period. That pretty much covered off, I would say, roughly half of the people that I was working on who were featured in my first book. Okay. Uh, so it was very handy to have. Then I collected another one fairly shortly thereafter. One of those historians who doesn't appear in that collective edition was somebody who wrote a, a complete prose history of England 
largely drawn from other people's sources. This guy's name was John Speed, and he's better known actually as a geographer because he also wrote a work called The Theater of the Empire of Great Britain, which is a massive collection of maps of, uh, of England and the counties and, uh, and so forth. It is hugely expensive because works of geography with maps sell for much more than the sort of history books that I collect. Now, is that partly because they're way more expensive to produce? Um, not really, because they were they, they would have been at the time, but remember, they were produced three or four hundred years ago. Yeah, so lots of pull-out maps? Yeah, uh, there's some pull-out maps, and uh, of course, books with intact maps are very valuable because there are a lot of books where we know there should have been maps, and the maps have been ripped out or cut out by some ruthless bookseller or owner. Uh, selling them separately as uh, frameable, frameable friends, and we've yeah. seen that phenomenon many, many uh, times. So, if you have an entire book like that that has all the maps uh, in place, it, it ups its its value. Any yeah. other reason for the the value of these things? Uh, well, I think it's just maybe more people are interested in the history of geography, and more the history of demand generally than yeah. than are interested in the history of history. It's a relatively niche interest I, I have, but John Speed also wrote this history of Great Britain. Uh, in addition to his geography book, and I managed to pick up a copy of that around uh, 1987 or 88 for not much money. How much? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> 30, 30 years ago, but it would have been, uh, you know, at that point I was a postdoc and then an assistant professor, so right. I wasn't making well, scads of money, no. so it couldn't have been a huge, huge well, amount. Two, three hundred bucks? Yeah, probably that vicinity. I didn't get into four figures and higher until much later. Okay. So your objective then was what? To get all of the histories of England written from when to when? Well, uh, I would say at that point it was just to get enough that I could work on to produce that first book and get tenure. I then didn't buy another rare book for a long time. Uh, How many did you have? At that point, I mean, I didn't have the Johnson that was with my parents. I had the the three-volume thing I talked about. I had the Hobbs. I had the Hooker. I had the Speed. That was probably it. So maybe half, maybe half a dozen. Okay, not very many. Not not very many at all. Okay. Then around um, nineteen, I guess a little later than that. I guess around two thousand and seven, eight. I had a year of research leave at the University of Alberta. They got a good library out there. They got a fantastic library out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, it's a terrific library. And uh, was writing what became my global history of history. And um, I uh, accidentally discovered a couple of dealers that I'd been previously unaware of. Uh, first of all, Biblio.com and then A Books. This was a near-fatal discovery, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, not, only, not only did they have many of the secondary sources that I'd been unable to get in my in my area. Uh, you just had, in other words, you'd have to have gone, as you say, I did have to, to go libraries. To the I did have to go to libraries, so suddenly I thought, oh my god, these are just right at the push of a button at the internet. Are these early editions, or um, did well, it matter? Many, many of them were, but I also used Abe to buy... I initially started using A-Books and Biblio.com to buy what I would call modern scholarly books in my area, of which there are many, okay. and which were not always easy to find. Uh, right. I mean, there was one particular that uh, I still use. It's over 50 years old, but was uh, probably the most important secondary source that I used when I was writing my thesis. 
It's by a, a guy, a retired professor, now retired professor at the University of Washington called uh, Fritz Levy, Tudor Historical Thought. And that thing was darn near impossible to find a copy of. So I'd actually illegally photocopied uh, one uh, uh, just to have a reference, but now with the internet and uh, providers like A Books, I could just you know, do a search. There's half a dozen copies. Uh, order one, and, uh, and and there you go. And then and then one day I decided, I wondered, you know, and I, I think I was working on another essay at the time, which was a little more of my early modern interest. And there was a particular. I, I didn't have a copy of Clarendon's History of the Rebellion. Now, that, if you don't know, is one of the most famous uh, histories of the mid to late 17th century. The Earl of Clarendon, Edward Hyde, as he was born, was a principal advisor to Charles I and later to Charles II after the Restoration. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the course of two periods of exile, both after the Civil War and then after he fell from power in the 1660s for the second time, he wrote this uh, very, very good history, which first came out in the early 18th century. It, uh, it's a history of the, of the rebellion, as they called the Civil War at the time, mm -hmm. uh, reasonably well regarded by, by people on both sides, Whig and Tory, of the English political spectrum in the early 18th century. And I thought, well, that's one I really ought to add to my collection. So a six-volume octavo edition of that uh, came up, so not the first folio edition, which was still you know, up there in price. Um, so I, I picked that up. When was that one published? Uh, early 18th century, because the first folio edition, I think it came up fairly shortly after the first folio. By this time, publishers were getting quite clever at repackaging books uh, in different ways. What, with um, new introductions? or what? No, not really, just in a, in a more affordable form, an sure. octavo rather than a folio. Well, I, should, I should also mention that also by this point, I'd also spent several years... Uh, shifting my interest from just writing about the historians of the past of that period to writing about the books instead. And my second monograph was a book that came out from Cambridge University Press in the year 2000 called Reading History in Early Modern England. And it was all about uh, the reading of history books, the sale of history books, the marketing of history books, the printing of history books, the lending of history books, you know, and on and on and on and on. This reminds me of a conversation I had, uh, and, and you've listened to it with uh, Jonathan Rose. Oh yeah, I know Jonathan, yeah. About this uh, history textbook project that they're running, where they, where they compare the textbooks year to year to see what our kids are being brainwashed with, and how, for yeah. example, the depiction of a native person changes over the years. Did you get into anything like that? Or not? Um, not so much, because again, I was working with uh, books printed roughly between 1500 and 1730, that was sort of my my rough cutoffs. But they would, was, they would change them. Yeah, they, the the they depiction would. of the, what took place would change. They would, but I was much less concerned with the content than I was with what was done with the books. So recalling Jonathan's interview with you, he made the point that book historians have a different interest than collectors do. Uh, in many ways, we couldn't care less about that this was the first edition or that it's beautifully bound or so forth. What we care about is, are there any notes in it? Did somebody read it? 
Did somebody, is there a diary or a commonplace book somewhere where somebody made notes on this, on this book? Yeah. Uh, how did they appropriate what was in the book in terms of perhaps speeches? Um, so what, that what, was what do you mean by that? Well, for example, um, you know, if you're making a speech in Parliament or you're giving a sermon, yeah. have you drawn a particular anecdote or story from a, from a history book? Okay. Uh, so I was interested in that. I was interested in the circulation of the books. I was interested in the fact that many of them came you know, out in different sizes. And well, why were you interested in all that? Well, you just where when you're a historian, things just pop up that you didn't know about that uh, catch that, your interest. That you want to know about. And that you want to know about. So. But yeah, but okay. So you wanted to, you wanted to know uh, why a book was delivered in different. Yeah, and who, who who read it? Uh, you know, so I, I mean that that particular monograph, uh, the one that came out in two thousand, was probably the most quantitative I have ever gotten as a historian. And that there's lots of bar charts and histograms and graphs and uh, tables, yeah. uh, because I actually tracked, for example, uh, subscription catalogs of people who would uh, buy books in advance by. Uh, by subscribing uh, for mm -hmm. them, they they pay they decree I will pay a certain amount for yep. this copy. You could pay an extra amount if you wanted a special one on what is called large paper. Mm -hmm. um, and then also there's a wide variety of uh, book auction catalogs from the late 17th and 18th century because uh, many people's libraries went on the market after they after they died, mm -hmm. and uh, these these auction catalogs were a gold mine in terms of. Uh, just, uh, I would, what I would say, the distribution of genres. And one of the things they show is that history, which had been a relatively minor niche interest in the 16th and most of the early 17th century, if you graph the number of history titles available and on the market, the graph rises slowly through the late 16th and early 17th century and then just starts rocketing up. Uh, uh, almost logarithmically after about 1660 and by the 18th century it's become the most popular form of popular reading apart from the novel. So did you come up with an idea why that happened? Um, I didn't come up with an idea why it happened other than just simply that uh, success breeds success and people were figuring, people were acquiring I would say and this led to I guess the sequel to that book, the one called The Social Circulation of the Past, people were acquiring a much deeper awareness of the past than they would have had, say, in the 16th or even early 17th century, when it was largely a gentry, clergy, and aristocracy interest. But by, the, by 1700, you've got publishers producing tiny little books for, you know, the lowest end literate reader. Now, remember when I say that, that that's still a very, very small proportion of the, of the population that could actually read or could afford to actually own books. But the central point is that if you were a history reader in 1500, you had maybe a dozen titles or so to choose from, plus classics, you know, Julius Caesar and so forth. Um, if you were in 1600, you had maybe, you know, maybe a hundred, at least on English, at least on English history. By the time you get to 1700, they're in the, they're in the thousands, you know, ranging from very, very serious works of scholarship, and now including that whole antiquarian line, 
to tiny little books that are just give the potted histories of uh, of England, one page per monarch, uh, mm-hmm. often written in verse. Uh, so it's it's quite an interesting story. So so that's that's how I got interested in in different books, and that sort of rekindled my interest in resuming my own collecting a few years later. Yeah, so, so what direction did the collection take, and how big was it at that point? Well, the collection, had, uh, the collection again, as I said, from about 1986 to 2007, didn't really grow at all. Again, you know, kids, mortgage, several, <laughs> several house moves as I changed jobs a couple of times. But in 2007, I, I, I guess I had another phase of book buying, and again, I bought that Clarendon book. I bought a famous 18th century Italian uh, history of Naples by uh, an 18th century Neapolitan scholar called Pietro Giannoni, very famous in, in terms of the history of uh, political thought as well as of, uh, of historiography. Um, so again, still a bit of pretty slow acquisition at that point. Yeah. And then um, I would say around 2013, uh, having now probably about 20 or 30 of these things, uh, and having also established a connection with my, my friend Jan Frontini, who I've, who I've mentioned to you, who has a fantastic collection of his own, of herbals, uh, books about plants, Jan is uh, a retired engineer turned professional bookbinder, and I was <laughs> running out of stuff for him to bind, and he was enjoying it so so much because he only does restoration binding; he doesn't do he doesn't do modern case bound uh, stuff at all. So you and were so buying I, you were buying these unbound? Oh, I, not not unbound, but uh, often in bad repair. So he just wants to just, yeah, just rebind, because, rebind because, because because again because collectors are often after something that's in really good mint shape. And I couldn't care less about that. I, I'd like it to look nice, mm-hmm. but I don't care that I have to buy it looking looking nice. You told me earlier you weren't so interested in content, but you are interested in Well, I'm content. interested in the content um, in that I, I decided when I got back into this seriously in 2013, and, and by that point I mean really seriously, <laughs> like uh, the, the collection grew, I would say, probably tenfold in six months. Okay, um, that was from that was from twenty to two hundred then. Yeah, I would say. Okay, from, what lit the flame there? Then? Um, I would say um, collection fervor, uh, <laughs> but but again, collection with a rationale. I wasn't just interested in anything seventeenth century. You know, you could have put a you could have put the complete sermons of John Donne on the market yeah. for nothing, and I wouldn't have touched it. Not that it wouldn't have been a lovely book and so forth. But I confined myself very specifically again to history book, history and antiquarian books, works that I either have worked on in the past or might be working on in the future. Can you tell us what the difference between history and antiquarian? Well, remember when we talked a little earlier about William Camden and his two books, The Annals of Queen Elizabeth and The Britannia, Yeah. and we couldn't make that connection between the two of them. One was he regarded Britannia as a book of antiquities or antiquarianism, based topographically, not a narrative, looking at old coins, funeral monuments, and things like that, rather than sort of more narrative texts sure. that a narrative historian would uh, use. Narrative historians of the period 
really thought that they, uh, unless they were writing something like a late medieval or early modern chronicle, which is, you know, this happened in this year, this happened in this year, and the chronicle itself largely died out in the course of the early 17th century. So most narrative historians were writing classically modeled uh, narrative histories, of almost always focused on a particular reign, so a history of the reign of King Henry VII, yep. Bacon, Lord Herbert of Chervey's history of Henry VIII, etc., even Camden's own annals of Queen Elizabeth. You know, straightforward narrative history. Yeah. Some were better researched than the others, Camden notably so, because he used uh, a lot of uh, documents and archives that he had privileged access to okay. uh, through his you know, connections with the court. Mm -hmm. Others just based on just other history books and uh, printed other earlier printed texts. The two, the two kind of dovetail by the end of the 17th century, uh, but nonetheless, there are a lot of works that are in the 17th and 18th century about, say, a particular town. But you didn't go after a particular. You did. You went after collections of histories of towns, right? Uh, I did have a, a certain. I did have a certain number of those, but again, because I had worked on them. In, in the mid-80s, I, I had a period when I was working a lot on the early origins of the use of oral tradition in history uh, in the 16th and 17th century, and uh, I published an article in 1988, which I'm happy to say is still fairly often cited in the journal Past and Present on English antiquaries of the 16th and 17th century and their use of oral, oral tradition. So that got me into those antiquarian texts which I largely hadn't touched when I was writing my thesis, which was more about the narrative uh, historians. So again, when, when you went from 20 to 200, yeah. what was your plan? Well, originally I just wanted to collect all of the books that were in, featured in my first book, The Idea of History in Early Stuart England. Uh, and uh, that's probably 25 or 30 different titles. Then once I got those, uh, and also various dealers had sort of figured out that I was uh, an easy mark. <laughs> they started pitching other things at me, so before we started recording the show, I showed you a copy of uh, Sir William Dugdale's Antiquities of Warwickshire, which is one of the one of the great topographical antiquarian works of the mid-17th century. What and, kind of stuff's in there? Well, it, it's, a, it's a study of the great families of the county of Warwickshire, of who held what land, uh, the you know monuments, uh, some going back to Anglo-Saxon times, some going back to Roman times, some going back even further, but of course they had a very heavily constrained view of how old the world was at that uh, mm -hmm. point, uh, roughly 5,500 years at uh, most, because that's what the Bible said. So things like Stonehenge, for example, they would variously ascribe to you know the Romans or the Phoenicians, and it couldn't didn't occur to them that it was a basically a Neolithic uh, structure because the, those concepts were two hundred years away from from being developed. Okay, so so in, in terms of what that two hundred represented, what what was that? Well, it, it grew to and by say by the end of twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen, it was probably up to four hundred. Uh, because I then expanded the scope to include the late 17th and even into the 18th century. I'd also bought my first Incanabulum, which is a book printed prior to 1500, and that's a, a German chronicle published in 1481. But there always had to be a historical theme. It had to be a, it had to be a history book 
or work of some kind of historical scholarship. But it wasn't complete by any means, was it? Um, it was well, just... it was complete so far as the English books, that in that I achieved my goal of getting everything that I had worked on in that first book. And then I got a whole bunch that I would say a very considerable representation of books after 1640. But you remember I said the the, the scale of titles exactly, goes yeah. way up. So, yeah. so you for, couldn't for me, I, I could not possibly collect all of the books published between 1500 and 1800. Just the 18th century ones alone would uh, fill five times the size of this uh, of this room. So I started having to be a little bit more selective. So you, you picked the easy centuries then, where there wasn't that much. To, 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 to for, the com- for the complete collection. Yeah, then, yeah. But right. the, if you can get all of the stuff published in the 16th and early 17th century, that's probably 100, 150 titles. And they weren't that expensive. And they were not, with a couple exceptions, they were not that expensive. So um, Mm. I got some lovely, lovely ones. Uh, I've got a copy of the summary of Chronicles by an Elizabethan chronicler called John Stowe, who had a long life. He lived from 1524 to 1604 and uh, made a kind of business out of publishing these chronicles. Just at the point that the chronicle itself as a form of history writing was beginning to die out in favor of this more humanist-inspired, straightforward biographical narrative. So I bought one of Stowe's books. Sorry, can we, before we continue? Absolutely. Chronicle versus... The more humanist, can you just define that Absolutely. a bit better? Absolutely. That is an excellent question. Because Shakespeare used some chronicles. Well, Shakespeare absolutely used the chronicles. Yeah. In fact, he specifically used a number of chronicles, in particular Raphael Hollinshed's chronicles, yeah. of which yeah. I have a two-volume edition oh. uh, in my collection still, okay. although I've actually put that one up on the market for sale. Our library doesn't want it because it's already got a couple... <laughs> So how did you put it up on the market? Uh, dealing with a particular dealer who's okay. put it on He's the He's Simon? He, uh, this is Simon, yeah. Yeah. Who, who had uh, Simon as it up for sale. But I still have it in my possession. Sure. So he's just simply acting as an agent for a commission. I see. No takers yet, and I'm not budging on the price. So uh, What's the I, price? Uh, I think I'm asking $18,000 U.S. Okay. And, and that's actually a mixed edition because I actually managed to find a copy of volume one of it and a copy of volume two of it from two separate dealers on the same day. Simon was one of them. Simon and who? Simon Lippard from uh, uh, that Lippard Books. Uh, I forget what his surname is. But, sure. Uh, and um, an American dealer whose name I don't remember, and I bought them both on the same day, so they don't have matched bindings, but it is a complete edition between the two of them. But okay. I, I, I'm unlikely ever to be working on uh, Hollandshed again. I've sort of said my piece on the Elizabethan stuff, so I figured, uh, you know. What, so what, again, is the difference between those two? Well, Chronicle basically is based on a medieval form of history writing, which is uh, focused on the actual year. So there's no sort of common narrative thread. Uh, the chronicler would typically begin, you know, at either at the creation or the foundation of a particular city, and often use regnal years, like the third year of the reign of King Henry III. And this, and this is what happened during that this year? This is what happened during that year, often with very little connection between events. The price of grain was high, uh, the king wintered at uh, such and such place, a great battle was fought, uh, a, uh, a, a, meet, a comet flashed through the sky. Yeah. Uh, More that's of a fa- kind of a facts-based rather than a very, no, very fact no analysis. Based. 
Uh, there were, I mean, maybe a little bit of an oversimplification because some of them did write more extended prose. By the end of the Middle Ages, you do have chronicles, uh, actually even earlier, some of the great chroniclers of uh, medieval Europe, and including England, you know, wrote things that, even though they had an analytic basis, as in this year and this year and this year, nonetheless, there was sort of continuous prose within, within, within that. So mm-hmm. it's not quite as cut and dried, uh, although 16th and 17th century humanist authors wanted readers to believe that it was cut and dried because they had an interest in establishing their type of history, which was based on you know, Italian Renaissance uh, standards. We could talk about that in a minute. Uh, they had an interest in making that look new and interesting and elegant, you know, the whole Renaissance rhetoric thing about eloquence being really, really important. So um, what you will find in the early 17th century is a lot of, uh, a lot of authors of narrative histories repudiating and making fun of uh, chroniclers as, as just concerned with trivialities, not concerned with great, great matter. They were often authors of low social standing. You know, Stowe and Speed were you know, middle-class members of uh, merchant companies, not, not gentlemen. Uh, so there was a very social dimension to it as well. Mm-hmm. But my point is that while the Chronicle was still used as a source, and continues to be, I've got a, a hole in my study, I've got most of the Oxford medieval text selection, which is a modern editions of medieval chronicles. But what had happened is it was no longer, they were no longer producing new chronicles, they were producing these narrative histories instead. Okay. So the chronicle had evolved, as I put it, from a genre in its own right into an artifact. So, so you were satisfied that you pretty well completed what uh, I, I completed. I completed the core collection, and I still have it here. Uh, but I, then I started branching out again, still within the general zone of historical scholarship and historical writing. I bought a lot of French stuff. I bought a lot of Italian stuff. Bought a huge number of 18th century uh, histories. Uh, and how did you afford obscure. this again? Um, Dude, wait a minute, though. Did you go from being a, a professor to being a uh, more administrative. Well, yeah, I guess uh, that's 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 also true. Is that by by the time 2013 that the, the big push on collecting came up, I was uh, the principal of Queens and earning a, a reasonably good salary. Yeah. The kids were all gone. The kids were largely through university at that point. Uh, yeah. So I had a little more disposable cash on uh, okay. on on hand. What, what did they think about your collecting? Um, I think they were a little sketchy about it. Actually, like, is this how you want to spend your money? Yeah. Our inheritance. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Stop <laughs> buying a lot of damn books. As I said earlier, they, they, they made fun of the fact that uh, I gone from using Abe to direct to the dealers and uh, likened us to going from the street corner pusher to, uh, <laughs> to straight straight to the uh, you know Walter White if you know Breaking Bad yeah <laughs> uh, so but uh, and by uh, 2015 or 16 I, I figured I you know enough already and then um, the also at that point the opportunity came up to give a significant chunk of them to our, to our library, which had always been the plan when I, you know, uh, left this mortal coil, but I just got a chance to make an in-life gift. So, so how'd that work? You get a tax? Uh, yeah, tax receipt. Uh, it, it happened a little earlier than I, and I, was, I have to say I was running out of room. I had, I had three quarters of these things 
in the principal's office at Queens. I had to get a special insurance policy to cover them. Uh, I had some of them, some of them at home, but uh, certainly was running out of room. But the opportunity to give the give what I would say was about a third of the total collection at that point came up uh, when Seymour Schulich, who is a very prominent Toronto philanthropist who's named a bunch of schools and faculties around uh, half a dozen or so universities, part of my job as principal was as a fundraiser and so forth, and uh, I'd approach Mr. Schulich because we actually hadn't had any uh, named chair or school or anything out of him. And um, he wasn't interested at first in doing anything, and we had a nice long conversation on the phone. And in the course of a phone call, which was basically a no, I'm not interested phone call, he asked me what my area of work was, and I mentioned the 16th and 17th century. He said, well, I've got a whole bunch of books I've collected from that period. Do you suppose the Queen's Library would be interested in those because I don't think my kids are? And I said, well, Mr. Schulich, uh, I can tell you that the library would definitely be interested in those. And by the way, it's interesting. I've got a collection of those my, myself. Can I come and see yours? So I went and saw his, and Mr. Schulich's collection was small, but it was very, very high value. For example, one of his books was uh, a, an early 16th century Caxton edition of the Polychronicon, and the Polychronicon was a very, very famous late 14th century chronicle written by a, a monk from Chester, translated into Middle English in the early 15th century around the time of Chaucer, and then one of the very, very first history books printed in England after after printing arrived. And he had one of these things. I was practically salivating over this thing. Yeah, but what, a, what an amazing coincidence. Well, it was a great coincidence. Yeah. And Seymour uh, uh, Seymour is a very, very generous man. He decided that, uh, you know, uh, I think he checked up on me, and I was actually bona fide, a serious scholar. Yeah. Decided he would give his books to the library. Well, the he, fact that it's a chronicle, like, did he, did he have other chronicles? Well, he had a few or? other things. He had a couple of geo, more geo, geographical books. Uh, so, again, it was a small collection, but I would say, I, w- I would say his, you know, 20 or so books were probably worth in combination about as much as my three or four hundred. So mine was broader, but he had some really, really rare, rare stuff in that. Uh, But there was a quid pro quo. He wanted wanted to establish a a really big collection of Queens, and uh, so he was quite prepared to give us some money to buy some more books. Uh, The quid pro quo was that I had to give my collection to the library as well. So uh, we sort of settled on, okay, we'll give the ones I'm not going to work on again. So I gave roughly a third to a half of them in 16, not 16, <laughs> <before we get laughs> slipped, in 20, yeah. 20, 2015, okay. uh, to the library along with Mr. Schulich's uh, book. And we, there's a special uh, uh, reading room in one of our two major libraries at Queens that is now called the Schulich Wolf Collection. Is that at the Jordan Library? Uh, it's, in the, it's in the Jordan Special Collections Library, which itself is within the Douglas Library, which okay. is the library you would have been familiar with when you yeah. were here doing your MPA. Yeah. Uh, so it's there I don't now. think I was that familiar with it. So um, that that's what happened. And then last year and the previous year, I gave two other tranches of books. Uh, last year, quite a big one. You, know, you obviously can't see this in a podcast. No. But well, I'll the, take collection, the collection you're looking at yeah. uh, that remains on my bookshelf, Gorgeous. I would say is roughly a third of what it was at its peak. These are beautifully bound, though, quite a few. Well, many of them are. Uh, many of them came that way. Others, others. I had my friend Jan Frontini, 
uh, rebind or restore. Uh, there's also another lady in town in downtown Kingston who does book uh, conservation herself. Uh, her firm. She's got a front that's storefront. Uh, R.S. Libri on Brock Street. It's not right across from Cook's. Uh, uh, it's right next to. It's a little further down. It's right next to the Kingston Olive Oil Company. If you know that. Just I know very, Cooks. very bottom of Brock Street. Very, it's, very, very close to Cooks. So she's done a few formulas uh, as, as well, but there are a few that are actually still in Mr. Frontini's hands uh, right now. So, so with this four hundred collection of four hundred, what kind of work did you do on it? Work in what sense? In terms of scholarly work? Yeah. Um, well, almost all of the books that you see, I will have actually written about at least uh, at least even if it's just a casual mention in an article or a book at some point. Some all of them. All of these books you've said something about. Uh, I would say, I would say, yeah, one point or another, I've written something about uh, about all all of them. About the content? Well, about the content, about where they fit into the history of historiography. Some I'm planning more work on. So, for example, one of my prize uh, <laughs> finds was an 18th century history, the history of England under the Stuarts, by a woman called Catherine Macaulay. And one of my other areas of interest is how women first began interested, getting interested in both reading and writing history. I published an article on that subject in uh, about 20 odd years ago in the American Historical Review, and I've done a couple of other things. I did one on Jane Austen and history, another on some of the 18th century intellectual women or blue stockings and their history. But Catherine Macaulay uh, was a major historian of the 18th century who has been understudied. There have been a couple of books on, on, on her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the reasons is that her history of England is very, very hard to find. And I found the only edition that was on sale, there hadn't been another one on sale for you know years. Online? Via, via Abe, uh, again, that's uh, sitting, over, sitting over there. And that one, that one's not going anywhere because uh, I am planning to uh, to do some work on it over the next uh, the next few years. So really, well, it it pays to focus on an a, an area of study that's first of all not studied very much. That that's yeah. one thing because your books, the books that you go after as a collector, they're not going to cost you that. Yeah, I mean, some cost more than others, but, but still, but nothing. You know, for example, I mean, some of some some books that you will buy, you know, that are in say the natural history or something, will be in the in the high five figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The most expensive book I've, I own is my probably that's that's not multi volume. It's probably my oldest book, and it's uh, a 1476 Italian translation of Leonardo Bruni's History of Florence, and that is often regarded as the very first of the humanist histories that sort of repudiated the chronicle style of writing. Bruni wrote it in the 1430s and 40s, early 40s, and uh, after him came many other Italian city-state uh, political figures who wrote their own their own histories right through the 16th century, but I really wanted to have a Bruni. And that one actually, ironically, came from a dealer uh, not very far away, just in London, Ontario. Attic books? Exactly. Just interviewed uh, Marvin. Okay, well, Marvin hand-delivered it to my house. Uh, uh, but but I, it was so expensive that I... Uh, I won't disclose the price no, because no, no. <laughs> people are listening to the podcast. But yeah, uh, but yeah. uh, let me just say I had to pay it by installments over a year, and that's actually the last one I bought. 
<laughs> that did you in? Yeah, it, it, it pretty it pretty much did me in. At that, at that point, my uh, my wife decided uh, enough already. Right? Yeah, it, and it was fine because uh, I I completed my core collection, and uh, I would say uh, my my interests have uh, shifted to 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 other things. And while I don't rule out at some point in the future that I I might resume the collection is closed for now, and I'm more in a uh, giving away period than an acquiring. Uh, I think in, uh, retirement's not that far off. We'd like to focus our uh, financial resources on things like travel and, uh, and other things. Um, okay, so we've, do you think we've got the story of your collection? Yeah, I think so. I okay. think it was, a, I would say, a long-term interest coupled with a little bit of disposable money and the onset of uh, collecting frenzy. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe we could get into, just uh, to winding down here, advice to, to the collector or to someone who's heard your story and is kind of keen to get into it. Seems to me that first off, a good idea is to pick an area you're interested in and study the hell out of it. I think that's, uh, I think that's very helpful because then you, then you know what you're getting. Uh, I mean, for example, you know, were I to decide suddenly that uh, I wanted to collect, uh, you know, 18th century texts about Italian music, well, I know a little bit about music, but, uh, you know, not enough to really tell what's an important book and what's not an important book. And uh, And is that, sorry, is that how, what happened with you is you, you did, you did a lot of reading, but then you, you came across references to other books that were important, obviously, and then you just made a list that way? No, I, I just, uh, I just uh, actually at one point, I just did a kind of series of word searches on, on Abe, you know, looking uh, for books published between certain chronological boundaries with keywords like history mm-hmm. in the title, and that sure. generated a whole pile, I had a whole binder full of uh, titles, okay. and I just started going through those, you know, prioritizing the ones that were, from a scholarly sense, of the most interest uh, to me. Okay. Yeah. And then, so let's say you've identified an, a, a book that you want. You do the search, you come up, there's seven of them. Why would you pick the one that you eventually picked? So, um, there are various criteria I use. For example, you know, if, it, if it's a first edition, I might be interested in that. But sometimes the first edition isn't the best edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of, for example, uh, there are two editions of Hollandshed's Chronicles. Uh, and... The first one is actually very different from the second one, and so you want you want them both. Well, I actually wouldn't have minded having both yeah. because the first one has one key distinction from the second one. The first one actually had illustrations; it had woodcut illustrations, nice. which in the second edition yeah. completely dis- disappeared. Shakespeare is most likely to have used the second edition that came out in 1587, but in that case, uh, there was a second edition available, as I mentioned earlier, two different dealers. Uh, but not not a first one. Other cases, you know, again, uh, Camden's Britannia. Uh, I didn't buy deliberately one of the Elizabethan or Jacobean editions of that. I bought the late 17th century um, 
what you might call editio princeps, uh, master edition done by a late 17th century bishop called Edmund Gibson, because that was the most complete, and it also corrected some errors in the 1610 translation that had been done by a more or less contemporary of, of Camden. So sometimes the first edition, if you're after the thing for the scholarly contents uh, of it is not necessarily the best one. Sometimes I'll pick an edition because it's got an interesting looking binding. Um, sometimes I'll pick it because it's got a very, very poor binding, but that I know I can get you know, rebound or repaired by cheaper my friends. It's absolutely cheaper, yeah. cheaper that right. way. There's somebody saying that says reading copy only. <laughs> That's, you you know, that. As long as the pages are intact, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. as long as the text block is intact. I didn't buy, I don't think I bought anything where the text block wasn't intact, but. Um, but sometimes, and this would particularly attract my attention, there would be something of particular interest in the, in the book, like it had annotations. Right. Uh, so it's like so. So an Elizabethan book with Elizabethan or Jacobean handwriting in it is automatically interest because you remember I have an interest in how people use these yeah. uh, these things. Plus, it's unique. Plus, it's unique. Exactly. I mean, so whereas I'm going back to your conversation with Jonathan Rose, we talked how a collector might not like to have you know handwriting and so forth in it. To me, that that's gold. I mean, yeah. to me, it's yeah. an added value. Uh, yeah. I don't personally mark up books myself. I use post-its, but. But, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but I love getting a book that's been that's been annotated. I particularly love it when I can identify the owner. And sometimes you can do that. It's got an interesting book plate. So yeah. I acquired, uh, and I showed you this earlier, a copy of um, an Elizabethan translator called Sir Geoffrey Fenton's translation into English of a very, very famous early 16th century History of Italy by a Florentine called Francesco Guicciardini. Very, very important book in that Italian humanist tradition. But there were other there were other copies of that. Why did I buy that particular one? Because it had a book plate of Matthew Arnold, the Victorian poet. And I thought I gotta have that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, important critic. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Another one. Um, I acquired a book called A Collection of Curious Discourses, which is a collection of essays written by Elizabethan and Jacobean antiquaries and then collected by an early 18th century scholar called Thomas Hearn over 100 years or so later. And I found out, and the book dealer did not realize this, that uh, the, actual copy of the, book, the actual copy of the book had actually belonged, because his, hand, his handwriting is in it, to the very first president of the uh, early 18th century Society of Antiquaries, which was a sort of a revival of the Elizabethan one. Uh, so I had that. I have a copy of a, a 17th century ecclesiastical history that belonged to Bishop William Stubbs, who was a great Victorian historian of England. He was a bishop, but also a professor at, at Oxford at various points in his life. And it's got actually, it's got actually, it don't belong to him, and it actually has an autographed letter to him from somebody else, uh, which I think just asks him if he can, if he can fill in and do the sermon on Sunday because the other chap's going to be, be away. So occasionally I'd buy something out of my period. For example, I have quite an interest in Victorian historiography as, as well. So, you know, Carlyle and uh, others, others like him. So I found 
unknown edition of Thomas Carlyle's History of the French Revolution, which contained an entirely unknown autograph letter by Carlyle to the Victorian critic Lee Hunt. So little finds like that. Yeah. Uh, there's one I wanted and never, never got. Uh, it was an antiquarian book of the late 18th, early 19th century, a very famous, famous one, and I'm blanking on the author's name, but it actually had, it was a presentation copy to his brother. Uh, I bought a copy now in our library of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. which had belonged to the playwright John Osborne. Oh, that's nice. And, uh, yeah. Given to him by his, you know, fifth or sixth wife, I forget which. <laughs> but, uh, right. yeah. So it really, uh, the, the advent of the internet, you can't just go around and, and find these books by hunting through bookstores. It's, it's the, the internet. Needle in a, needle in yeah. a haystack. It yeah. would, you know, I, I mean, I've done that sometimes. Now and again I've found a, it's a little pure treasure. Luck. Pure. But it's, but it's, yeah. but it's pure, pure, pure luck. Uh, yeah. I think, for example, the, the copy of Speed's History of England that I bought around 1988. I had a couple of spare hours. I was back in Oxford doing some research and uh, just uh, happened to wander into Robin Waterfields and there this thing was. And it had actually belonged to... Uh, a, a famous uh, early 20th century literary critic. Again, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. having okay. a senior moment and yeah. blanking, blanking on it, but uh, again, I, uh, I thought, again, interesting provenance, I'll, I'll take yeah. that. So, uh, you told me, and I'm having still having trouble believing it, but that you've gone cold turkey off collecting. Um, I would say, I mean, I guess I would say that I reached a point where I had collected everything I wanted. And again, I, I had set some parameters. Uh, also, I think I had exhausted uh, both available funds and my spouse's patience. <laughs> so, yeah, how uh, did you phrase that? The domestic police. Yes, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, Julie has been very, very understanding of this particular habit, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we, we do have other uh, joint priorities, and uh, including paying off our house, so... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just it seems to me that I don't think I could ever do that. I couldn't go cold turkey because I'm coming up with all sorts of ideas on what to collect all the time. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I've got, I've got lots of other hobbies and other interests. Uh, yeah. I've like, discussed astronomy and photography. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, you know, occasionally I pick up a musical instrument. I used to play the violin. used to play the saxophone. Now that I've uh, out of the principalship, I may pick up some of these uh, again. And, and again, you know, you know, never say never, but uh, you never know what... Uh, uh, make up. And I'm also, I would also say I'm, I'm vicariously involved in collecting and that we're still adding books at the library to what has become the Sheila Wolf collection. So uh, once again, so just uh, just over a year ago, we were able to persuade uh, the Sheila Foundation to provide us with some additional funds to acquire a copy of the Nuremberg Chronicle. And that is a very, very famous uh, late 15th century history published in Germany by a, uh, an author publisher called Hartmann Schädel, mm -hmm. uh, full of woodcuts. I saw a copy of that at a book fair and it was, it was Attic Books again. Yeah, it could have been. This didn't come from Attic. Uh, we bought this particular copy, and I forget where from, 
because I think it's an American book dealer because it actually was very very lavishly annotated and illustrated by a by an early 16th century owner uh, mm. so it was just it's just, it just a beauty but uh, that book alone uh, cost more than all of the rare books I have ever had or will <laughs> okay. or, or ever will have. <laughs> sure. So, but what you're saying though is that you can still search around, and if you find something, you don't have to pay for it. They pay. Well, for it. I can bring, Yeah, I mean, the, the, the that, that sounds like fun. The library's got limited funds, but I, I intend to remain you know, involved as an advisor with the collection sure. uh, for as long as they. Uh, long as they want and uh, you know who knows they may be adding uh, adding adding more any uh, parting wisdom for collectors yeah well I would say well you hit on one thing which is I think pick an area that you're passionate about and interest I mean if you just pick rare books period it's going to end up as a collection without much uh, connection without much uh, I would say identity. Mm. I mean, the, the beauty of mine is there was a finite number of things and then I could add a kind of <laughs> satellite circle of <laughs> other things around halo, it. Halo, halo. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but, uh, but I had a genuine interest in, in the topic. So, yeah. yeah, if it didn't fit those sort of parameters, uh, you know, I could easily, it might be the most gorgeous looking binding in the world, but I'm not interested. And yeah. Look for, look for bargains. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're really clever, uh, you can go direct to the dealer. Uh, I'm sure eight books would not like me saying that. but uh, uh, The dealers would, though. The dealer, well, the dealer, a books charge is a pretty severe market, but I think it's like something like six percent uh, on a on a book sale. Yeah. Uh, so if you can save, if the book dealer will waive that, and uh, yeah, you know, often they'll also do stuff on layaway. So I'd, uh, I bought a number of books in sixteen. I keep saying 16, sure. 24, showing my 17th century roots in 20, 20 14, 15 from a firm in uh, Northern England, now now in either the Shetlands or the Orkneys, called EC Rare Books, and many of those I just bought again, like the like the Bruni that I got from Attic Books on layaway, you know, yeah. just, just 100, 100 pounds a month or something for 12 months. Or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, it's, it's interesting about uh, this conversation about just being a pure collector or being a collector that has a scholarly interest in what they're collecting so that the, the actual collection itself will be valuable to other scholars. Exactly, yeah. And that was part of the goal that I wanted to leave behind eventually, and it's happened sooner rather than later, yeah. a really, really first-class collection of early modern history books. Yeah, and it seems to me that if, if you're able to, to find a niche and then uh, identify books that will be of, of value for studying, for history, studying of history, let's say, you stand a better chance of some institute wanting to apply. I would say that's, I would say that's true, yeah. I mean, I mean, and that's a good point because... Uh, a lot of these things, it's hard to give away. Uh, I mean, the, the, the market uh, for, I mean, again, it's a niche interest to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, and if your collection is very, very indiscreet and uh, you know, all over the place, it's going to be hard to pitch that as a whole collection. You might you know, sell individual books to yeah. book dealers, but you're not going to get very much. Well, um, yeah, that's the thing, too, yeah. is most libraries 
if it's in an area that, that, that you're collecting, and they'll they'll probably have quite a few of your things. Oh, they will. And they want to cherry pick, you know. Oh, they will, absolutely will. So I still have on the shelf books that I have actually offered to our library. Yeah. But they, they, I would give them a, a list and they would say, no, we got this one already. Or, or they, in some cases, they might decide that my copy is superior to the one that they had mm-hmm. and they'd take mine, I'd get the tax receipt for it, and they would then sell the, uh, the, the inferior copy that they had. So mm-hmm. there were in just the tranche I gave them last December, uh, there were a few that uh, my, my copy will replace one that they previously had. Any other parting words? Be careful with your credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Thank you uh, so much for uh, the story of your collection. Well, thanks very much. It's been just great fun to talk about it. I've been speaking with uh, Daniel Wolf, who uh, most recently was the uh, principal and vice chancellor of Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. You mentioned you'll be studying this historian. You think, uh, well, I'm going to be we're I'm going to be working over the next few years on because uh, you're continuing to teach. Right? I'm continuing to teach uh, once I get back from my administrative leave. So I'm I'm basically be going back to the beginnings of my career and becoming a full service professor again. You know, some teaching, some research, some service. Uh, but I, I don't have any intent of uh, at least at the moment of pursuing uh, some you know uh, university presidency elsewhere. No, you know, no. Since retirement's just too close for that. I want to you know, finish out. A scholar in uh, Kingston where Queen's University is located thanks again thanks very much Nigel